Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. This is, and I can't believe it, we're at episode 10, Judicial Prerogative, Wearing a Robe in the Time of COVID. So I've been told I should remind my listeners that they can go to my website, showwolfmediation.com, where they can check out articles, play Resolution Roulette, and get past episodes of this podcast. I even have video clips of me in my former litigation days arguing a case to the Indiana Court of Appeals. In that case, I had the pleasure of working with my next guest. It's been a while, and since then, I've moved to Texas, and he now has a seat as a judge in the law division of the 18th Judicial Circuit in DuPage County, Illinois. Phil, let's welcome to the podcast the Honorable Judge Brian Chapman. Welcome, Judge. All rise. Hey, Steve, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. And so we we talked off air about some of the cases we worked on together, and you reminded me of a deposition of an expert, Dr. Ganwa. And I think some of my uh, video uh, clips, as I just referenced, were of me uh, trying to convince the Court of Appeals that summary judgment should be affirmed despite the fact that the other side was the only one that presented an expert witness. So I bring that up for two reasons. First, you're somebody who can actually vouch for folks out there that at one point in time, I was, in fact, a real litigator. Well, not only were you a real litigator, you were a litigator that motivated me to want to understand that case because we got in later. And so I was told to reach out to you and I, I learned a ton about the case and I, you took an ownership of the case that I just thought, boy, that is exactly what, what I need to be doing. And I was a little younger are a little earlier on in my career than you were. So I looked at it and said, boy, that's that's where I need to get to. Now, I actually never got to where you got to. I had to go a different route. But uh, you were not only a litigator, you were a great one. Well, boy, uh, I think you overshot that mark for a a shameless plug. So uh, I do appreciate that. But I think you're also being a little humble in terms of where you've arrived in terms of being not just a judge, but a judge who's thoughtfully analyzing some of the uh, cutting edge issues today and we'll we'll get into that. But before we do, I you know the second reason I I bring that up is when you talk about depositions or arguing to trial or appellate courts, what are the things if any that you miss from being in private practice to transitioning to the bench? Yeah, that's a great question and it's it's something I think about because in in certain respects the job of the role of judge Transitioning from litigator to judge, it's, it's a remarkable opportunity in terms of the way you get to spend your day and certain things. And there's just, if you're a litigator out there, you know the life of a litigator and the life of a judge are very different. But what I do miss some things from being a litigator. One thing I miss is sometimes I don't have the ability to just close my door and uh, bury myself into the facts and legal arguments of a case as I work on a brief. I have to do that in smaller snippets multiple times a day on different cases. I'm jealous sometimes of how well the lawyer knows their case and how I wish I could know it as well as they could. (laughs) But the case volume is such that you have to learn how to manage your time 
and value your time in, in terms of how do I how do I allocate so that I can be adequately prepared for every case, uh, especially on contested hearings and various types of trial and evidentiary hearings, adequately prepared, but not so prepared that I'm neglecting other things. And so management of time is something that can be a bit of a challenge. And sometimes if you were in the kind of practice you and I were in, Steve, it wasn't so much high volume as it was a number of cases, but the cases that, that allowed you to kind of really dig in. And I miss that to a certain extent. And sometimes as a judge, I have to dig in regardless. And that's because the issues just are what they are. But at the end of the day, I'm on the bench every single day and I don't get to really engage in the research process the same way a litigator gets to. Okay. All right. Well, let's look at the other side of the coin there. What's the best part of switching to the bench? And before you answered, other than, of course, requiring your wife and kids to always call you your honor, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I tried that and she said, okay, your honor, take out the trash. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. that, That didn't go very well. Or it felt a lot like beforehand, I should say. You know, the thing I like the most, there's a few things that need to be said. One is, and I I really do hope this is true for judges anywhere who are listening to this, but the collegiality of my colleagues is remarkable. It's inspiring. It encourages me to want to be the best judge I can be. And the, the camaraderie, everyone appreciates what each of us are trying to do. And we also understand in ways that only we can understand exactly what it is like we have to do and why it can be challenging sometimes. That's number one. Number two, it is an utterly fascinating job because every single day, almost every single day without fail, I'm being presented with not just new areas of the law to familiarize myself with and become acquainted with, but remarkably different fact situations that require uh, hard work and thoughtfulness to try to get right. And not not every case is uh, 3D chess. Don't get me wrong. In fact, most aren't. But there are enough of them to where it's, it's a really fascinating and intellectually rewarding job. And then the third thing I would say is it's not infrequent, even in a law division call, which for our listeners, it's, I just hand, I handle cases involving money damages above a certain amount. So I'll get everything from med mal to breaches of contract to insurance coverage to various tort claims, car accidents, and whatnot. The opportunity for litigants themselves to come into court, you know, whether now it's via Zoom or what before it was in person, to come into court, to be treated with respect, to understand what's going on, to be heard, and to understand what the decision was and why it was made. It may have gone their way. It may not have gone their way. But the best part of my job is when I, when I get the sense that people are leaving the courtroom and the courthouse with the sense that the system works. And I know that that's a really weighty phrase right now that is something that I think a lot of people might be wondering about. And the system isn't perfect and it doesn't get it right all the time. But whenever you have, whenever I have a chance to be a part of a process that encourages people to believe in the rule of law, the idea that judges and lawyers are doing their level best, that's encouraging. And I think some of the other courtrooms I've sat in, whether it's traffic court or chancery call that involves a landlord-tenant list of cases, those are also courtrooms where the best thing about the job is people coming into court and leaving, feeling like they were heard and that the process made sense, and frankly, that the process was, was even fair. 
I can't say it happens all the time, but I'm encouraged when it does. And I think that's super important. I think that's for listeners, that's a great insight in terms of what your perspective is, both of being a judge and kind of your role in the the entire system. And I think really it helps you and the system itself be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if if people have comfort that those working in the system, you know, the judges are working hard to get it right. They're human. They might make mistakes at certain times, but that they care about it as much as you just, you know, illustrated. More often than not, when somebody cares about it, it's going to lead to, you know, more correct decisions and a respect for the institution that leads for respect of the rule of law. And we promised each other off air, and so we're not going to go down the rabbit hole of, I think we're talking today in about day 300 of the uh, COVID pandemic and what seemingly is already day 55 of the election. So we're, uh, (laughs) we promised. At least that's going smoothly, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And and I promised you I wouldn't ask your opinions about that, although I think you told me that, unfortunately, that doesn't stop family members from doing so. But we'll focus more on the COVID part than the election part. And, you know, I've done multiple podcasts with policyholders and insurers on whether there's insurance coverage for business interruption claims made under uh, property policies. So uh, for those of you who might be interested in that, episode four was with Mark Schrake from California and Frank Wise from Oregon. Episode five was with Chicago's Seth Lambden and Dan Litchfield. And so fair to say, just by the people who I've gotten onto this podcast, it's a national issue. It's a national problem. For those of you who don't know, Judge Chapman, is one of the few judges around the country, although I think that club is going to be growing you know, by the day, to hear and issue a ruling on one of those cases. So he uh, presided over It's Nice, which is Harold's Chicken versus State Farm, in which he uh, granted a, a Rule 2615 motion to dismiss, finding a lack of a direct physical loss, as well as determining that a virus exclusion unambiguously barred coverage. So first off, Judge, I, I think I told you a little bit off air, my, you know, my wife went to the University of Chicago for her residency, and we both are Harold Chicken fans. And I think I told you, I don't think I could ever be a judge because now my wife's from Memphis and she prefers Gus's fried chicken. But if I came home and told her that I had a ruling on whatever issue against Gus's fried chicken, there would not be matrimonial harmony. So, I, you know, w- one question, I mean, how can you divorce yourself from whether you have any familiarity with the party? Yeah. Well, again, you, I, I kind of take this sort of social contract approach to if I have, obviously, if a judge has too much familiarity with the party, the judge has to, at least in Illinois, do an honest Rule 63 assessment of whether or not he or she can be fair and impartial and disclose any issue on the, on the bench. But where I, where I may have an affinity for a particular restaurant or, or shop or, or facility, I always think, you know what, the best way for that place to thrive is in a society in which the law simply is applied without favor or curry. So that's really how I do it. Now, if I have to admit, if a Kansas City barbecue establishment was put in front of me, that might be a bit of a problem because I, I am from Kansas City. And while your wife may love Memphis fried chicken and probably Memphis barbecue as well, 
my ties to Kansas City barbecue run awfully deep. So that that would give me a real problem. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, and not surprisingly, uh, my wife's Memphian uh, roots uh, also, uh, she has her, her barbecue uh, favorites. Everything has to be dry rub here. <laughs> yeah. and, and St. Louis cut, no baby back. <laughs> Look, I don't want to ask you for a lot of details about the Harold's Chickens case, but rather as a judge, do you feel any added pressure or excitement when you see a new and important issue that's being resolved by judges around the country, you know, creep into your courtroom? Yeah. Excitement. I don't know if I use the word excitement. I, I suppose that's probably fair, but I'm wondering if, if maybe a, a more accurate word is urgency or you've got not just a, a question on a contract in a case like that, but you have when you get cases that involve sort of almost like public policy kind of there's a pandemic in that case. You want to know, OK, you understand that this issue is being addressed by state and federal courts throughout the country in a fairly rapid basis. It does kind of get the blood going a little bit. I think that's fair to say just to make sure that you you as the judge are in step with the issues that are being presented you know, not just in your case, but to the extent they're being presented in other courts, you want to see what those other courts are saying, because while they may not be binding and oftentimes aren't, courts are looking for guidance, not just from the litigators, but from other courts who are being uh, advised by other litigators as well. We, at the trial court level, at least in state court, we don't get, you know, amicus briefs, right? Like we, we aren't getting a friend of the court briefs that hit every angle under the sun. So on an issue like this, that's kind of cutting edge and we really don't have a body of case law to guide us. And that is not to say that the case law is necessarily devoid of providing real guidance already, but you don't have this kind of a scenario. You do want to see what other courts are doing. So there is an energy behind, you know, in this case, my analysis of this issue or, or any other issue. There's some class action issues in Illinois that are bubbling up that we're seeing kind of race through the court system that require the same kind of intensity because I want to make sure I'm capturing just as the lawyers want to make sure that they're providing the court with all the relevant authority and all the opinions addressing the same issue. I want to make sure I have those available to me as well. So the short answer is yes, there is an excitement, but at the same time, I still want to understand my role and my role is not to, address what is outside of my courtroom. My role is to decide the case in front of me. On the other hand, I think, you know, without thinking about any case in particular, but just more generally, if you're a judge who likes every decision you render, you might not be a very good judge. And Neil Gorsuch actually said that at his confirmation hearing. So that's Justice Gorsuch for you. I think the Gorsuch quote you know, made me think about your transition, you know, from private practice in the sense of, you know, he's saying it, you're not a good judge if you think every opinion you've ever written is legal prose and, you know, should go in textbooks, right? Or is exactly how you'd like the outcome to be. Right, exactly. And I think, that, like I said, I think there's some layers on that because on one level, I think just as a human practical element, you say that and I think it just humanizes somebody on the bench because if we're honest... I would say the same thing just as a lawyer, right? I mean, 
the briefs that I wrote in one case, for whatever reason, you know, just might have been objectively better than this other case. And, you know, sometimes you can't even put your finger on why that is, you know, but all cases, all arguments aren't aren't equal. But somehow, going back to the rule of law, when it comes down from somebody in a robe, it, it almost is supposed to be that way. But, you know, the fact that you might not just on how you analyze something, you might look back at something 10 years later and say, well, you know, may- maybe I would have, you know, looked at it different. But I think the other layer that you were kind of getting at is by calling balls and strikes, you're just deciding that contract issue that's in front of you. And, you know, you're not the legislature, you're not overstepping your your bounds. And so sometimes it might be frustrating that you really just have to decide that limited issue. And there might be, you know, the world might be a better place if, uh, legislature or the law was different, but in a way that is just completely irrelevant to the issue presented to you. I don't know if, if that was kind of what you were getting at. Right. Obviously, it sounds nice and clean to uh, the layperson, perhaps, when someone says, well, a judge just calls balls and strikes and I just apply the law to the contract. And, you know, someone might be able to get on with that and say, yeah, that sounds that sounds reasonable. I can, I can co-sign with that. That's what we want. But there's this great dialogue between Justice Breyer and Justice Scalia. And I know I referenced three Supreme Court justices in the last five minutes, and I'm nowhere near that. So uh, I don't think about my job in terms of like, well, what would Breyer and Scalia or you know, Gorsuch or, you know. Well, you need two more justices to get your opinions yeah. affirmed, okay? So there's got to be two more <laughs> right. justices in the future. They had this great dialogue for the benefit of high school students some years ago, the two of them. And they talk about how they interpret, how they resolve cases. And Scalia takes sort of a, I look at the text and the history of the text, and that helps me. Breyer makes this very fascinating point when he says, well, that's great in easy cases. But a lot of times the text and the history doesn't actually answer the question that's actually in front of us. And so he says, here's what I then look to in addition to help me find the underlying value and whatnot. And Scalia comes back and says, well, yeah, but really, you know, you can do more with what I say. So they have a, a genuine debate about that. But The reason I bring that up is the calling balls and strikes works, or it seems fairly straightforward, when text is clear, when the contract is clear. But oftentimes, whether it's a contract or whether it's some other kind of document and the judge is asked to uh, find that one interpretation is reasonable and the other is not, or the judge finds that there's more than one reasonable interpretation, that's where I think, you know, judges either get into trouble or get accused of, it can be both sometimes, of of saying, okay, well, what what else am I going to consider in order to resolve this? And is it proper to consider these sort of sources beyond whether it's extrinsic evidence, whether it's policy considerations, whether it's legislative history? Those are the areas where I think people start to wonder, is this judging? Is it policy? Is it you know legislating? So I, I don't want to oversimplify or make it sound like, yeah, just call balls and strikes. It's that simple. Sometimes it's not. And I think sometimes judges are still trying to do their level best, people just have different opinions about what certain texts mean. I think that this is providing a lot of good insight, especially for anybody who might be appearing in front of you. And and, and for those of you listening, let's switch from a Illinois uh, peculiar issue to something that's impacting courts around the country and 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 that's obviously covid. You know, episode 8 I did with 
Matt Fisher, who's a, a defense attorney who has a national trial practice. So he, he's been, I think he said, in like 30 states. And I thought he was a good person to talk to because, you know, different jurisdictions have, some are going back to having in-person trials, some are having pilot programs for Zoom trials. Obviously, hearings have gone forward around the country on Zoom. So, uh, you know, what's your sense in terms of, I'm not asking you to talk about nationwide, but how your, how DuPage has, you know, handled the pandemic? Yeah, I, I'm extremely proud of our circuit. And that has almost nothing to do with me and has everything to do with, with the leadership of our circuit, the bar out here, which is a, is a mix of Chicago and DuPage. DuPage is a collar county of Chicago. Our courthouse is, is based in Wheaton, which is the county seat. It's gone extremely well, all things considered. We have some very limited jury trials taking place in our criminal division. Obviously, we're trying to prioritize liberty interests. We are managing traffic in our courthouse to make sure we are complying with CDC guidelines and social distancing, putting really people's health and safety first. But we are moving cases as well in all divisions. And the effort that has been made by really the administrative staff, really even just like, you know, the, the importantly, the support staff at the courthouse has been remarkable. So in my division, for instance, a decision was made, all proceedings are remote through Zoom. And so when you have a division where money damages is, is the only issue, we're trying to move cases because those cases can't just sit. People deserve resolution both on on both sides of the v on the other hand if we've got liberty interests or we have family law issues that involve parenting custody issues you know prioritizing those figuring out a way to prioritize those make sure those cases can keep going money damage jury trials are happening starting next year we do have limited bench trials going on our division right now everything else is happening through zoom and it's really remarkable, and I think the, I think the bar would, by and large, concur. Everything is running; it's running smoothly. I think schedules are more available for parties because of the Zoom capabilities. I don't think Zoom is without its own cost, though. I think there's something to be said for the majesty of the court. By that, I don't mean me. I simply mean informalization of court proceedings if they can take place from your kitchen or your office and got a shirt and tie on and a pair of jeans or a pair of shorts on underneath and no one knows the difference you know there's there's things where we've we've just had to be flexible on and we want to be because we want to keep the main thing the main thing and not get the you know major in the minors but at the same time i think for purposes of notion of just how important the rule of law is how important in being able to go before a judge and understand that what's going on in there is really serious business. And that's true whether or not it's a, a medical malpractice case involving someone who's passed away, someone who's died, whether it's a really complicated commercial breach of contract case, or whether it's a traffic violation. Because the likelihood is that that traffic violation may be the only time that person ever appears in court. And that's their one exposure to the justice system. So simply making sure that people leave with a confidence is important. And I think Zoom is doing a pretty good job of that. 
But I, I don't know that it's something that we would want to see happen in perpetuity, kind of as sort of the only way in which to do court. I don't know that Zoom's going away anytime soon. I'm not even sure that it should. But the idea that we're not going to have people back in the courtrooms regularly, in person, standing before a judge, I, I, I'm not totally sure that's the right way to go either. I think having that back in place would be ideal. And hopefully we can get back to that at some point in the future when it's safe to do so. Well, we all have our, our fingers crossed. I want to ask you, what do you think, as someone who litigated for a number of years, and you're obviously familiar with Zoom, do you think the benefits of doing most proceedings via Zoom is a net plus? Do you think it's a wash, or does it? Do you just think, oh my gosh, that's ridiculous? Well, no, I'll, I'll give the the standard lawyer answer of it depends, and you know, yeah. I'll say that for this reason: I think if you're dealing with cases that involve parties and attorneys from around the country, like we had just suggested some of our cases were. You know, I think there's a lot of things that in the past drove up costs ultimately for clients, you know, where lawyers would come in, you know, for a status hearing where they were really only taking up five minutes of the court's time that, Absolutely. that, that, right. that you know, that can be done. Like if, you know, as a party, you know, I get you need to affiliate with local counsel and, you know, but at the end of the day, if you're a company that has a relationship with an attorney who's been admitted pro hoc, isn't abusing that, you know, system and is your counsel of record, it's expensive to fly them in every status hearing. So I think transitioning to a docket that allows that, and I think it will. I, you know, I think in the past attorneys were reticent and many courts just wouldn't allow you to, you know, to phone in. And I think if you were, had a national practice, you felt like you were going to get home teamed if you weren't there. You were all worried that everybody was rolling their eyes because, you know, I've been told from on this podcast that I have a slight Chicago accent. You know, I, I, I didn't realize that. But if I'm arguing a motion or at a status hearing, uh, you know, somewhere else in the country and I'm doing it over the phone, I can only imagine, you know, are they rolling their eyes, you know, with my accent or things like that. I think those concerns are going to be diminished going forward. Now, that being said, I think once we get to trials, you know, there have been, and I talked with Matt Fisher about this, uh, for those of you, uh, you know, are interested, you know, there's been some imperfections. And as he said it, he just said, as a trial attorney, you have to recognize that things are not what they were, and that things are not going to be as perfect. And it will be up to each jurisdiction to decide how far we can stray away from what we were doing Presume. And so the example that he had, he does a lot of asbestos defense cases. And there was a California case that made national news a little bit where some clerk on accident, the judge wanted a sidebar. And next thing you knew, the plaintiff was left alone in a breakout room with the jurors. And he had uh. a discussion with the jurors about, like, he said, to one of them who had one of those cool Zoom backgrounds, you know, like, oh, hey, you've got the Eiffel Tower behind you. How do you do this? And I guess for five or 10 minutes, and everybody, I think it's pretty much agreed that nobody talked about the case. But for five or 10 minutes, they were like, oh, go move your mouse there and whatever. And so defense counsel filed a, a motion for a mistrial, you know, saying that that was prejudicial. Ultimately, the court 
rejected that. But those are things that I think courts around the country are going to have to decide at what level, you know, it's obviously less than ideal, and the defense was arguing the plaintiff had the opportunity to ingratiate himself with the jurors. But on the other hand, I think if you're going to go out and try to do Zoom trials, you almost have to recognize that that's going to happen to some degree. And it's going to change the standard about whether that is reversible error or grounds for a new trial. But I think every jurisdiction is going to be a little bit different on how they handle that. Right. Yeah, I would also add, just add, that we as a division here understand that the first one to three trials, you know, you learn it, you learn something in every trial, right? I mean, you learn more than something. You learn more than one thing in every trial. But the first few trials we have in the division, once we get to a point where we can safely handle any of them, we're going to learn a ton and there are going to be issues that we're not even thinking about right now that will come up. And so we are very mindful of that. So hopefully our mindset is we're going to proceed when we know it's safe to do so, even on a limited basis. But even then, some of the things we take for granted in presiding over jury trials or conducting jury trials in the past, everything as simple as lunch breaks to all sorts of, you know, obviously jury picking, picking a jury, is going to look very different. There's all sorts of ways to do it or ways that people are thinking about doing it. Yeah, we just have to be willing to learn, and we have to understand it for the same reason your prior guest said, you know, look, we just trial lawyers have to think anew. So will courts in a lot of ways. Not because not that the rules of evidence are any different or the rules of civil procedure are different or that it's any less a courtroom, but what the process will look like, at least for various stages, may look very different, and we have to be okay with that for at least for the time being. Well, he made a point, you know, first of all, logistically, if you look at some of the pilot programs, and there have been, and I'm sure you've got other people with you, some of your colleagues who are looking into, you know, what the results have been from courts around the country that have have actually had live trials. I think we're going to see that even if you can impanel a jury of 12 people and do that safely, you're still going to have difficulty bringing in everybody for voir dire. So I think we're going to see in-person trials before we see in-person voir dire. I mean, I think that's what we're seeing around the country is that that's being done yeah, you know, I, by I, Zoom. Yeah. Let me just briefly, I would co-sign that and I can tell you that in Illinois, there are, from the Illinois Supreme Court on down, there are active steps being taken for remote jury selection, which, you know, in some ways, you know, if one thinks about it for a second, that could actually simplify some of the timeless issues that that go on with jury selection. So it may actually solve a few problems. It's going to create a few issues that we're probably, some we're thinking about, some I'm sure we're not thinking about, but you're right. That is one of the things that will have to be addressed. And I think remote jury selection is something that and I don't want to say that's where you know, that's where the circuit said it. I don't speak for the circuit, but all of these things on a much broader scale are being thought about across the country. That's exactly right. Well, and obviously the ultimate decision is going to be based on what the facts and data are concerning the coronavirus at the time you guys are deciding to open up. Well, you mentioned you know the stress on the system when you have cases that languish on your docket for longer period of times. What's your sense? I've heard from, you know, different folks, different things. A lot of people feel that if you don't have a trial date, there's not pressure on the parties 
and they're not really thinking about potentially settling their cases. Do you think litigants are, are starting to adapt to the new normal? Yeah, you know, I'll give you a lawyerly answer. It depends. Um, you know, I think we're still, believe it or not, although it feels like we've been living with COVID for, you know, longer than the 300 days that we have or whatever it is, or maybe that's just me. I don't know that we've had this situation long enough to totally know exactly how it's affecting the life of a case. What I will say is I have found a fair number of cases for both sides on statuses asking for the opportunity to go to mediation before they get going on written or before we get going on F1s, before we get going on retained experts or whatnot. And I get the sense that the reason they're asking for that is because they understand that even if jury, they still got, you know, experts or they still got all of their uh, fact discovery to do, they realize that even if they move swiftly without, with little to no discovery disputes, the trial date they're looking at is a ways out there. Couple that with the fact that we don't know exactly where we're going on this virus. I mean, I think we all kind of, you know, even if not spoken, all kind of assumed that 12 months from now, it will be better. And let's hope that it is. And and we very well may have good reason to think that, you know, with vaccines going up, but we don't actually know that. So I'm wondering, in my mind, if parties are thinking, you know what, between the trial backlog and the uncertainty of COVID, you know, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. I do get that sense. Parties are more willing to engage in in mediation, in settlement conferences, in trying to resolve cases before more money is sunk on balance. Now, I have heard that in some instances it has been the opposite because there are certain types of cases that require a trial date before both sides get serious. Whether or not COVID has only made that worse, I don't know. But we are giving trial dates. And we've been giving trial dates really since, I want to say meaningfully, since June or July. Okay. So on balance, I would say most cases are probably a little more eager to try to resolve. I think certain types of cases, it's still pretty hard. So we're talking about uh, resolution of cases. So obviously I have an interest in this answer, but has your perception of mediation or frankly what would make a good mediator altered since you you know now that you're a judge i don't know that it's it's been altered because i don't know what my thoughts were prior to but what i can say is i think what i think makes a good mediator are a few things one someone who can make sure both sides feel like they're heard number two can someone take a complicated situation and make it simple. In other words, you're going to tell me your version, you know, your story. I'm going to tell you, listen, this is what a judge or a jury is going to hear. This is what this case is about. And here are the things I'm going to want to consider or are going to be particularly important to any fact finder, right? So there's this big, long story. Can the mediator basically retell the story to them, emphasizing the points that are of critical importance? And in, in so doing, demonstrate the strengths of the other side as well as the other side's weaknesses. And has the mediator demonstrated uh, familiarity enough with the facts and the record that's currently in existence such that he or she should be taken seriously in terms of what they think makes sense 
what's a reasonable settlement range, what a case should resolve for, and the like. Relative strength on summary judgment, you know, potential dispositive motions. Has the mediator done the work? I think once a mediator establishes that, I think parties don't go to mediation for posturing all that often. It can ha- it happens, but I think most of the time, if we're going to spend money, I think the parties are looking to get it done. And so those are the things that I think, you know, make a good mediator based on what I see parties wanting when they ask the court for any advice and when they talk to the court about why a case isn't settling. They want to know what's this going to look like in front of a jury? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And do you know enough about my case that I should take you seriously on what you just told me in, in regards to those to those things? Does that make sense? Oh, no, I, I think so. I mean, there's no question that a good mediator needs to be able to develop a rapport with parties. And one way to do that is to show that you understand their case. Now, it requires some preparation, both on the side of the parties and the mediator, to you know, have the mediator, like you said, you know, in terms of a judge, there's times where no matter how hard you work, you're, you're still not going to know the case as well as the attorneys. They've, been, oh, right, they've right. been living with that case. And so the mediator has the same type of, of issue. But I think that if you get to the point where the parties respect that, oh, you know, he's aware or she's aware of, you know, this issue, you know, I think that always helps. Okay, judge. So have we missed anything before, as we do on this podcast, we play a little game? I do want to make one correction. I do have the wife and kids, but my black lab at home would be remiss if if we did not mention him. He's one years old, and the first thing I'll do when I get home is I will probably walk the one-year-old black lab. Excellent. And, and, And so what's the name? Moose. I joke with my family that Moose is the only one who listens to me. Let's do the game. All right, let's do the game. For anybody listening, this is going to be a new one. We've done some other games in the past. So this is really more of a a question more than a, a game. But so if you'll indulge me, we've got two medical centers, okay? So one hospital has an average of 50 births per day, and the other one is a smaller facility, and they only have 10 births per day. The average number of boys and girls being born on each day is equal. How often will each hospital expect more than 60% boys on a given day? So I'm not going to ask you to calculate anything. I'm giving you three options. A, the smaller hospital can expect to have more than 60% boys more often than the larger one. B, this will happen more often at the larger hospital. Or C, it's equally likely to happen at both hospitals. I'm going to give you an answer, but can I tell you a short story? Sure. So when you started this, question my mind raced back to sixth grade okay i'm in sixth grade i was in the school spelling bee i actually won that school spelling bee that year which was great and i snuck into the math bee later on and math you know i'm a lawyer right i don't know math and i i'm like all right well i can maybe survive a couple rounds 
you know, and you went to school spelling bee based on the fact that you didn't happen to get the super hard words when your name was called. So <laughs> I'm thinking maybe I can replicate this and at least, you know, get into this here a little bit. First question up, and the rule was your hands had to be on the desk. You couldn't, you know, do anything. And I knew there was like one kind of question. Like if I get this kind of question, I'm probably done. And sure enough, the principal starts. Train A is leaving Phoenix at 9 a.m. And I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> it's completely over. Train B, because these, for whatever reason, these questions just absolutely drove me nuts. And instead of, like, giving the old college try with no effort, I just looked at him and I said, I have no idea. <laughs> so I wanted to say to you, oh, no, I have no idea. But you've given me options. I have. It's multiple choice. Without giving it much thought, by that I mean any, I'm going to say C. That they both have the equal probability. Right. Okay. And so if it makes you feel better, that's what most people say. Uh, <laughs> so I think you're laughing because you realize the, the next step is most people are wrong. Yeah. You can get pretty far in life, Steve. If you if you get on with most people, well, yeah, I'll tell you. And actually, but so this is about the third or fourth of this type of game that I've played. And you, first of all, regardless of whether you were correct or not, yours was the best answer. Okay, I mean the, the history of you going back and the spelling bee, the math bee. I mean that that was awesome. But most people, when presented with this type of question, if they don't know the answer mathematically, lend themselves to what's called the equal probability bias and convince themselves that two outcomes are probably about the same because they haven't calculated why that's not the same. So that's their default assumption. And so while I've presented different games, many of them have kind of led to the same point. But there is actually... The mathematical rationale behind this is something you're probably familiar with. Somebody who did do some insurance work, the key to knowing the answer to this is the law of large numbers. It's actually why insurance works, right? I, I can take premiums from millions of people, and I know there's going to be some bad outcomes, but the more people I have, the more I'm able to distribute the risk. It's kind of the same way here. The way Here's how I look at it. You have the smaller hospital only having 10 births a day. So if you think about it, Let's say it goes girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, so that you've got five girls and four boys. You only need that one last one to be so that you've got the sixth boy. Whereas if you've got 50 births every day, the ratio needs to be 30-20. So if you look at it as every individual act, you need more of those to start being grouped in a particular way than you do with the smaller hospital. So the smaller hospital is more likely to have more days in which they have 60%. So that, that's the answer. And you also did suggest that you're a lawyer because you don't like math. And I have to tell you, in mediation, especially when I'm either talking about you know any type of cases, even family cases where we're divvying up personal property. At some point, I hear from the lawyers, you know, well, can you run those numbers for me because I'm not good at math? And so the one thing that I, I do this for, and, you know, there's kind of a method to my madness, is 
valuing complex cases. So you have brilliant attorneys who know what the law is. If it doesn't settle, they're going to effectively present evidence on their client's behalf. But ultimately, when they're making decisions about probability or about settling, we're making decisions about probability, yet oftentimes that neither the client or the lawyer has a generally good understanding of probability. So I wind up trying to use these type of games to show that sometimes we make assumptions about how likely something is, not based on correct math, but based on instinct. And oftentimes that's incorrect. And so as a mediator, my job isn't to tell people they're valuation of the case is wrong, but just like I want to point out strengths and weaknesses on their legal theories or factually how they're going to support their arguments, I also try to, perhaps more than some other mediators, make them question how they're valuing the case. And at least if they're going to walk away from a settlement, it's because they have not reacted with their gut, but have gone through a more methodological uh, exercise of assessing what the risk really is. Right. I mean, and I don't want to reduce it to this, but there's a little bit of a money ball piece to it. Like sort of the eye test for certain athletes can result in vastly overpaying and vastly underpaying. If all we do is kind of look at sort of the superficial stats and, and go by the eye test. And, you know, we, we know now that in all sports, you know, baseball, probably chiefly among them, that the way to value players has been forever changed for a lot of the reasons you just said, and applying it to settlement is really no different in a lot of cases. Well, I tell you, it's good that you snuck that in the end because we would have gone down a huge rabbit hole with Moneyball. The only thing that I will say is... And Tony LaRusso. Well, well, okay. Yes, yeah, you had to get that, <laughs> get, get that in. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am a rabid White Sox fan, and I think Judge Chapman recognizes I'm probably not thrilled about their recent managerial uh, but we'll see but you mentioned you mentioned moneyball and, and and so here's what I'll leave you with since we've talked about our, our wives and dogs already I went to see the movie did you see the the movie with Brad Pitt I did okay yeah. so I saw it with my wife and so we're watching the movie and uh, not to be a spoiler here but the movie's been out for a long time the book's been out for a long time and it's actual yeah, limitations is up right and it's actual history so we're watching and you know the A's fall behind you know by like 10 runs and they make this fantastic comeback to uh, win the game and win the the division and you know my wife the whole time you know she really liked the movie and and she was so excited and she and she looks at me and she's like what what's your deal I'm like you know this is an actual historical event. So, yes, I was aware that they were going to win that game. <laughs> you know, and she was like, oh, okay. I do think what you've said, let me, let me just underscore what you've said and why mediators are particularly equipped. Well, at least the, the mediation itself is the proper place, I think, to engage in that kind of thinking about one's case. You are right in that conventional thinking is primarily what is used in thinking about how to settle cases. And conventional thinking, unfortunately, can oftentimes be not just inaccurate, but stale and, and lazy at times, right? I mean, it, it can be. So anytime, especially in cases that require, where there's a, a lot of moving parts and thinking about how to think about it, how to think about a settlement, what you've described here is super helpful and 
I think parties should actively seek it out. And I think good counsel is partly a recognition that there are others who can help help a client think through that, whether it's the attorney, him or herself, or a mediator in some kind of ADR environment that can help them explain, you know, here, look, you know, what makes sense here may not be what you think makes sense. Maybe it is what you think makes sense, but let's at least make sure we know why. Well, you know, I also think that sometimes attorneys, attorneys take ownership of a litigation case, and that includes then recommendations concerning settlement. But I think that attorneys who are quick to admit that numbers might not be their strong suit really need to be open to the possibility of having more open-ended conversations as opposed to just recommendations with clients. Because I think a lot of times lawyers forget that when they're talking to a client who's a business person, well, they assess risks all the time. And so instead of just telling them you have a 30% chance and therefore the value of this case is X, I think sometimes you can have an open conversation with somebody who might actually understand assessing risks better than the attorney. That doesn't mean the attorney isn't providing value. The attorney is definitely providing value by assessing strengths and weaknesses and telling the client what will happen in their realm, in the you know, in the courtroom or, you know, in front of the particular judge. But sometimes I think lawyers can become a little bit too possessive of the evaluation when it's maybe not their strong point. Right, right. And an awareness of that can lead to the wise counsel. No, I, I agree. So, you know, one, one last thing, you know, I, I did this with, you know, Matt Fisher, because I think this might, I don't know, you, you tell me, this might be helpful for you. One of the the other biases or fallacies that I talk about is called the the base rate fallacy. And that is people tend to focus on information specific to them. So lawyers, information with respect to their case, then a general baseline. And so my example would be if you and I did insurance coverage work. So let's take a misrep case. Misrep is pled a lot, but you can count a handful number of cases where somebody successfully wins on misrep. And if you're in a settlement negotiation and a party prefaces something by saying, look, I understand that in this jurisdiction, it's hard to win on this argument, but we have particularly good facts. My suggestion would be, even though they think they're being eminently reasonable and they're saying, therefore, we're only asking for a 25% discount, And that sounds like, well, 25%, that doesn't seem like a lot. The reality is if the base rate is one out of every 1,000 litigant wins that motion, then by asking for a 25% discount, they are saying that their case is orders and orders and orders of magnitude above the base rate. And so sometimes the way to talk to people isn't in percentages. You can talk to them in relative strength and say, okay, so is your case 10 times stronger than the average case? And if they say that and you point out, well, less than 1% of, you know, these cases prevail, you know, how are you getting to 25%? Sometimes that helps. So that's just, uh, yeah, uh, that's good. You know, but so that's just another one of these. But like I said, before we started this game, I think we've taken up plenty of your time, Judge. We really, really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. I think as people probably can tell, it was also great just to keep in touch and, uh, you know, talk 
legal philosophies with uh, somebody I haven't talked to in a long time. So I, I, I appreciate that. Absolutely, Steve. It is an absolute pleasure just to talk to you, let alone be able to be a participant with you on your podcast. I'm glad you're doing the podcast. You're a, you're a well-rounded person who can talk about all sorts of things. Like I said, it was a pleasure to work alongside you all those years. And I wish you nothing but the best. And thank you very much for this opportunity. All right. Well, thank you. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.